considering that our nation uh, actually had a time of revolution a while back, uh, on the Sunday of Peace, I have to admit a little bit of confusion. It seems as modern Americans, within our lifetime, we have become fascinated with British royalty. Uh, their weddings are televised, funerals are televised, and people just wait to see what's going to happen next. And I'm not sure, uh, after we said, we don't want to be part of you, why our hearts are over. Maybe it's the spectacle and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But the latest thing, obviously, that has happened of great importance, Elizabeth II, uh, born um, in... Um, the 21st of April, 1926, passed away on September 8th of this year. She was the king, queen of the United Kingdom and other Commonwealth realms from the 6th of February, 1952, until her death in 22. Her reign of 70 years and 214 days was the longest reign of any British monarch. And it is the longest verified reign of any female Margaret monarch in history. Now, what you may not know about her, because it wasn't broadly publicized, she was a woman of faith. And it did show up uh, often in her annual Christmas message to the nation, broadcast to the Commonwealth. In the 2000 broadcast, she said, to many of us, our beliefs are fundamental importance. For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in the difficult times from Christ's words and example. Now, her popularity waxed and waned throughout her reign, but in the end, uh, Queen Elizabeth II was a well-loved monarch. And her death was mourned throughout the Commonwealth and throughout the world. Her son, Charles, Prince of Wales, immediately succeeded his mother upon her death. And he set a record also. At 73, he is the oldest person ever to accede the British throne. He became Prince Charles III. His official coronation is scheduled on May 6th next year at Westminster Abbey, where the St. Edward crown will be placed upon his head, and he will be recognized as king. Now, the interesting thing is there are mixed emotions and feelings about Charles. Overall, he's had uh, recently, the, the majority of the, the nation, the Commonwealth, were saying they held him in some popular opinion. But when it comes to the throne, there was a British poll done by the BMG Research Group that said 46% of Britons would prefer if Prince Charles would immediately abdicate the throne before a session in favor of Prince William. So he's going to be king, but we're not sure we want him to. Now, what does this have to do with the psalm we will look at today, with the theme 
of our service today. Well, Paul Hooks explains that Psalm 72 that we'll be looking at very shortly was a royal psalm. Now, that's a group of psalms that were used primarily in reference to the kings of Israel and Judah. It was a psalm for a Davidic king that celebrated, particularly whenever a new king took the throne. Now, specifically, the psalm we're looking at today is a prayer for the reign of God to be realized through that reign of the human king. Now, Solomon, I believe, as the author of this psalm, was the one when God asked him, ask for anything you need when he became king. He said, give me wisdom to rule my people. And he did so justly for a while. But even Solomon fell short of the vision of the faithful king that he wrote in his own psalm. Finally, he became more enthralled with his own prestige and wealth rather than following God. You can read about that in 1 Kings 11. No other descendant of David has ever fulfilled it either. So, in the end, we are forced to admit the king described in this psalm is ideal, not historical. Hooks wrote, no historical ruler has fulfilled it, and judging from the course of human events, none is likely to do so. But he cautions us at the same time, we must keep alive the hope and expectation that the righteous ruler will come. and The vision of God's glory will be manifest for all the universe to see. For Christians who read this psalm, That day has come, at least in part and in anticipation. Because this psalm reminds us that the only king whose life has ever reflected the rising of this kind of glory, the only king who merits our adoration and worship is the one who, when he came in his first advent, refused to seek a throne for the sake of a cross. For Christians, this psalm finds its fulfillment in the reign of Jesus. It has already been revealed, but one day it will be completely fulfilled, somewhere in the future. We realize that at that point, God's judgment and distribution of justice and righteousness to the world will take place. Hooks wrote, to read this psalm is to capture a glimpse of God's new reality, born in a manger, enthroned on the cross, and coming to transform the earth until even the mountains and hills glow with divine glory. Derek Kidner has pointed out, this psalm is nowhere referenced in the New Testament as a messianic word about Christ. But it so clearly mirrors Prophecies made in Isaiah 11, part of which we read today, in chapters 60 through 62, clearly recognizing those as messianic, we will see that this is about the Messiah of God as well. Now, let us read this wonderful text, and I will tell you it's a lengthy passage, but don't let that cause you trepidation. Listen to the beauty of this amazing royal 
psalm. This messianic claim of what is to be. Psalm 72, 1 through 17. Would you please read us? And again, I will be reading today from the Legacy Standard Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. O God, give the king your judgments and your righteousness to the king's son. May he render judgment to your people with righteousness and you are afflicted with justice. Let the mountains lift up peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he give justice to the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Let them fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon from generation to all generations. May he come down with like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. May the righteous flourish in his days, an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. May he also have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the desert creatures kneel before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer tribute. And let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy with his, their, he, when he cries for help. The afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live, and may they give to him the gold of Sheba, and let every each pray for him continually. Let each bless him all day long. May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. May its fruit wave like the cedars of Lebanon. And may those from the city blossom like vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. Let all nations be blessed in him. Let all nations call him blessed. God rest the re- bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now in our psalm today, Solomon wrote about a king that would be unlike any the world has ever known. As followers of Christ, we have come to believe that is in our King, Christ Jesus alone, that we find the one who can give us peace. Now why is Christ our only way of peace? Why is he the only one? As we explore our text, we will discover the reasons this promised King alone can give us peace. So let's take a look. First of all, his reign is righteous. This is incredibly important. We need to understand this. His reign is righteous. And what Solomon says in the text is his king who is coming will rule the people with righteousness and justice. Now the word translated righteous, righteousness is tzedakah. It means acting to a proper standard. 
It means doing what is right. It means being in the right. And the standard that is set of what determines rightness is God Himself. And so, righteousness is the essential character of this kingdom that will one day come. It's The word righteousness is used in three, three times in verses 1 through 3 alone. Righteousness finds its meaning in a God who does all things rightly. Now, did Solomon have righteousness? Yes, early on. But as Solomon's reign increased over and over and more and more wealth spreading like Israel had not seen, he was moved further and further away from the Lord. He allowed other gods to enter Israel through his wives, many, many wives. And he began to oppress his people. He oppressed them with taxation, much of which they real, many of them could not afford. And folks, we need to understand this. This is the way of human kingdoms and leaders. All are stained to some degree by sin and selfishness. That's a reality. Even uh, the best of our leaders are leaders with feet of clay that stumble. But this promised king will continually rule God's people in righteousness. The word justice is mishpat, and it means making a judgment, making a dispute, a case, a claim. And it carries with it the idea of the quality of being free from favoritism or self-interest, free from bias or deception. And this justice will especially conform to the established standards or rules. And remember, these are not the rules the people made up. These are the standards and rules of God Almighty. And since the promised king will rule according to God's plan, without prejudgment, he will bring peace to the people of the world. Now, the word translated prosperity in some translations, actually is the word shalom. And shalom most often is translated as peace, as in the legacy standard. It's one reason I chose this text, to focus on that word. And the peace of God means wholeness. It means wellness before God. God making us complete. God making us into what we can be. So what this means for us is simply that this king can be trusted to do what is right, what is good for his people. He can be trusted. Now, this cannot always be said of human leaders. And most of you are old enough to recognize that. We've seen failures. Far too many who lead will do as Jesus said. In seeking to be great, they will lord it over their people. But this king, this king will always have one major motivation. To do what is good 
rich, meaningful for those who are his subjects. This king will bring righteousness and justice. And that ultimately means, as as we hear this, what do we do? We need not fear following the one who is the only way to peace. I have told you before, or some of you anyway, I have voted for someone once in my life. From that point on, my vote has been, who do I think will hurt the country least? And that sounds extremely cynical, but I recognize the problem of human sin. I don't have to fear following our king, for he has our good at his heart. Why? Our second reason shows us. His compassion is complete. He has a heart of love and compassion and kindness, the like which the world has never seen. And I want you to hear very carefully the description of this righteousness. Solomon writes that he will give justice to those who are oppressed, defending those who rarely have anyone to care about them. He will even reach out to save the most helpless of all, children who are born into poverty. And we are told that this king looking at these helpless, hopeless people, will bring deliverance to them. He will save them from ruin, destruction, or harm. And he will deal severely with those who use and abuse others. At one point he says he will crush the oppressors. And it quite literally means to break something into pieces. And over and over in the Word of God, we see how God will bring the exalted down and lift up the oppressed. And that's what he's saying here. This king will deal with all those who have used and abused the people of their reigns. And a very, very important recognition of this is his compassionate is not reserved for the acceptance. He's looking at the people that much of society looks down upon. And even to this day, people can be very unkind about those who are impoverished, often blaming them when it may be situations out of their control. You see, human leaders have a tendency to look down upon the masses of people. Human leaders pay close attention to those they think can be profitable to them that can help them. And so they will look for those who will be beneficial to them. Look for those who will be productive. In March of 1984, Governor Richard D. Lamb of Colorado gave a speech to the Colorado Health Lawyers Association at St. Joseph's Hospital. And in this speech, he described people who are elderly who die without having their lives artificially extended. In other words, they don't go for heroic measures to bring them back. No being on machines until they can get well. 
People who die without having life artificially extended are similar to leaves falling off a tree and forming humus for the other plants to grow. And then he said, you have got a duty to die and get out of the way. Let the other, the other society, our kids, build a reasonable life. He was 48 when he said that. He was 86 when he died last year. And uh, through complications, I believe it was a pulmonary embolism. But I wonder, would he have he resisted being put on machines if he had time? This king promised in this psalm reaches down to those that society says are not important. So we need to recognize this. Those who are not important. He loves. He doesn't look over. And in the grand scheme of things, most of the people in our world fall into this category. Why? Does he care so much reaching down? Well, our third reason shows us. His compassion is grace. The fact that he loves is an act of grace, completely and totally. His compassion is grace. The truth is, The promised king does not measure anyone by their worthiness. If you were to take a look around at everybody and then look into a mirror, you would see people who do not deserve salvation. People who are not worthy of his love. Everyone in this room were sinners. Paul called the Ephesians, they were dead in their sin. And that was us. And we had nothing to offer this king. And yet he looked and he didn't measure us by whether or not we were worthy. He measured us by his compassion and gave us that which we do not deserve. Now for our third reason. By his compassion is so great. His heart is refreshing. I love this part of the psalm because Solomon paints a beautiful picture of what this rain will be like to people who are hurting, who are in pain. For he says, this king, he is like a refreshing, cool rain. And it, it may be, as Solomon wrote this, he had in mind the last words of his father David. They're given in 2 Samuel 23, 1-4. And I want, to, want you to listen. The dying words, the last words of a person can be very, very important. Listen what David said. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, The man who was raised on high declares, The anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of Yahweh spoke by me 
and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men as a righteous one, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds, from brightness of sun after rain, with the tender grass springing from the earth. You see, Solomon said of this righteous person, the righteous person under this king's rule, the individual subject whose integrity depended on the peace of God, they'll flourish because he will bring a beautiful reign of grace. And what this means, this king is a giver of life at its best. Whatever you identify success in your life, if your life is not surrendered to Christ and yielded to Him, your definition of success is a failure. This king promised us that he had come to give us life more abundant. Now, This does not focus on success as the world defines it. It really doesn't have anything to do with material prosperity, although God may bless you in that way. It doesn't deal with being great and famous and powerful, although God raises up people for that purpose. Instead, it focuses on peace, wholeness of walking with God. It focuses on purpose. It focuses on hope. And it is a life the world simply cannot offer. And so, what do we do about this? We can eagerly follow His heart to abundant life. We can commit ourselves. Lord, we're going to follow You. We want to yield to You. We want to submit. We want You to truly be Lord in our lives. Jesus said in Matthew, excuse me, in John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now again, he's not saying if you wish, if I were to wish with all of my heart that my Mitsubishi Mirage would somehow be turned into a Jaguar overnight, it's not going to happen. If we are living in Christ, If His Word is living in us, it changes what we want. What we want becomes focused on what He wants. And what does He want for us? That we trust and follow Him into a life with real meaning. Real meaning. And why should we do that? Because his rule is universal. This is extremely important for us to understand. His rule is universal. What Solomon said was a high watermark and not the way most Israel thought. This king, his reign will not be limited to Israel. This king doesn't just love Israel. And he uses some very poetic imagery. 
from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, are pointing all over this world. There will be people who submit and yield their hearts to his reign. He says desert creatures, which probably is making reference to nomads. People who wander the desert without a permanent home. In other words, another group of people that most everybody else tends to look down upon. And all the way to kings will be from far and near will pay tribute. And somebody made a point that, that this idea of kings bringing gold and rulers bowing down before him, they said, even though they're not called kings in the Bible, it can't help but bring into our mind the idea of the Magi who searched for this king and gave him gifts and worshipped at his feet. Now, I need to warn you, this promise, an important truth, this is another beautiful anticipation. We have to know this, people. Because if we don't, we're going to possibly move into despair. We have to know and trust this. Jesus is Lord, whether the world acknowledges it or not. Shortly before I came to Pickney area, out down in Nicholson, there were two signs on the interstate coming into Picayune and exiting Picayune. And the signs read, Jesus is Lord over Picayune. Since it was public land, uh, the leaders of B decided they couldn't be put there. So the signs were brought onto private property at the extreme south and at the extreme north of Picayune. And I think the last song, sign, to the best of my knowledge, came down sometime after I left. Somebody may have raised it again. Do the people of Picking universally recognize Jesus as Lord? No. How can I say that about a whole people? Because I lived there for 12 years. And I watched the lives of the people. I read the Picking United. I listened to news. I knew the stories. But just because many, if not most, did not really live under the lordship of Christ that did not deny he is Lord. And one day, all of creation is going to acknowledge this. The passage you know well, Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of creation will one day understand Jesus is Lord. Now for us, that's going to be a note of triumph. It's going to be a note of praise and adoration. But for many in this world, it will be a note of just recognizing we were wrong. We should have followed him. The truth for us, we don't have to wait for that one day. We don't have to wait for that moment when he will be exalted over all creation because we can know him as Lord right now. If we have trusted in Christ, 
He can guide our lives into His fullness. He can fill us with everything the Advent season promises. Hope, peace, joy, and love. As no one else can. We do not have to wait for heaven to know the Lord. Isn't that amazing? We can have a relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords right now. We can pray to Him. We can call out to Him. We can ask for His help. We can follow His words. We can know Him as Lord without having to wait. Absolutely amazing. And then, because He is Lord, because He reigns, And His reign will touch all. We have our final reason why this King can bring peace. His reign shall have no end. There will never be a time when Jesus ceases to be Lord. And Solomon again uses very important terms. He says, may his name endure forever. And what that means, may his name exist forever. Now, I've told you many times, in the Hebrew way of thinking, your name is not just what you were called. When you see the phrase, praying in the name of Jesus, it's not just saying, in Jesus' name, amen. It means praying under his authority. Praying because of who he is. It's his character at his deepest being. And so the psalmist says, this king's character will go on and on and on. And then he says, may his name increase as long as the sun shines. Again, may his character never fade from view. When he comes to establish his kingdom, once and for all, his name and character will shine for all eternity. May all the nations be blessed in Him. All the peoples of the world who want hope, who want peace, who want life, will find it in Him. And let all the nations call Him blessed. Essentially, Solomon was declaring, this King shall last forever. And all those who trust in Him will join Him and the fulfillment of His kingdom. One day, we will be with Him face to face. One day, we will know the love and majesty of our Lord. And we will be counted with all of the saints through all of the ages. And what a day that will be. If you think Singing songs of praise are beautiful today. Imagine a multitude of choir and angels singing the glory of this Lord. You see, the simple truth is that we need to understand. When he uttered that wish, when Solomon said, I, may God, may this king last forever, he was letting us know something. Thousands of years after he wrote it, This king who will last forever 
What does it mean? No one can ever dethrone the king of our peace. Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher of the 19th century, and through several of his writings, he used the expression, God is dead. He was saying, we don't need God anymore. I once read an illustration that I will always love. It's one of my favorite of all time. Somewhere, supposedly somewhere in a New York subway tunnel, someone with graffiti wrote on the wall, God is dead. And they signed it Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Underneath it, someone wrote, Nietzsche is dead. And they signed it God. It's been said of the Word of God. It has existed long enough to be preached at the funerals of everyone who derided it. Folks, the world may try to ignore our King. They may try to say, we won't follow you. They may follow the path of Psalm 2 and rise up uttering vain things in defiance against God. But they will never unseat Him. They will never knock him off his throne. And no no matter how many times they say he doesn't exist, he is dead. He lives on and on and is king forever and ever. Amen. And one day, our king will make peace finally and fully ours. He will take away from our existence All of the evil, hatred, belligerence of a world that says we don't want you. We will never have to walk in the presence of sin anymore. We will never be tempted by sin anymore. Because our king lasts forever. And one day, the Prince of Peace is bringing his peace. Philip Doddridge wrote a beautiful Advent poem. Its title is in its very first statement. Hark the glad song. The Savior comes. The Savior promised long. Let every heart prepare a throne and every voice sing a song. He comes, the prisoners to release in Satan's bondage held. The gates of brass before him burst. The iron fetters yield. He comes, the broken heart to bind, the bleeding soul to cure, and with the treasures of his grace to enrich the humble poor. Our glad hosannas, Prince of Peace, thy welcome shall proclaim, and heaven's eternal arches reign with thy beloved name. That is the King promised in this song. That is the king we can serve today. Today we truly need to recognize there's only one way to peace and that is through the promised king, Jesus the Messiah, the Christ of God. And I ask, do you know him today? I pray that you do. And that you listen carefully 
to the tugging in your heart by the Holy Spirit as He woos and speaks to you, calling you to come home. If you don't know Him, listen to that call. Quit trying to fight the Prince of Peace. Yield your lives into His hands and receive the life that only He can breathe. If you do know Him, but you're struggling today, life has become so overwhelming You are trying to hold on as tightly as you can. And you feel your fingers slipping. For you today, ask him to send his peace, his grace and strength that can sustain you and help you to stand firm in a world sorely lacking in peace. God, let your peace wash over my heart now. And let me know that I am in your hand. And for all of us today, celebrate the promise of his continued coming because he comes into our lives all of the time, coming to call us back when we've walked astray, coming to call us to love him with all of our hearts and minds and soul, calling us to yield and calling us to a life more abundant.